Hello, my name is Michelle Yanachan, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, Conversations with Writers Exploring What's Informed Their Books and Their Lives, around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent. And a flag for us too here, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us on the app you use to tune in. We want our brilliant guests to be read more and heard more, and strong ratings help make that happen. Thanks in advance. I'm joined by the writer, Damien Labar, to discuss his book, The Stopping Places, A Journey Through Gypsy Britain, part memoir, part travel writing, and an exploration of Romany history. Damien, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you for asking me. The stopping places are, in your words, empty spaces by the sides of the road, flat areas on verges and slightly raised banks, vacant pull-ins and lay-bys, old encampment sites known only to travellers, the Romanies of Britain, that is. And you geared up a Ford Transit van and went to explore some key sites for gypsies around the UK, overnighting in the back of your van. Before your trip, you called these places glimmers of another world that felt as distant as the stars. How far away did they feel after your trip? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd lived in some of them, so they felt not only close to me, but within me in a way. Um, I'd sort of taken them to heart, I think. So that was a change. But there was still this distance of the fact that I didn't grow up in them. Um, the way that I travelled around them was was very different to how... Romani people and other ethnic nomads who have spent their lives, who are born to that way of life, uh, live in these places. So for me, it was a kind of a life experiment in a way, a writing experiment that I was lucky enough to be able to undertake uh, at a certain time in my life. Um, I was alone a lot. And that's another huge difference in how I experienced these places because gypsies and other travellers tend to travel in big family groups. They're very visible. Uh, that's part of the problem for them in terms of how they're treated. And, and so it was a it, it was a, a deeply significant experience for me, but but also very different to, to how it would be for most nomads. And, and was that ever an alternative strategy to kind of tag along to a group of gypsies, perhaps that you didn't know, and and experience stopping places with them? No, to be honest, I never considered that. And the reason is probably because I'm of Romani heritage myself, I'm aware of how difficult it is to do that, how kind of socially awkward it is to attempt that uh, in a way that perhaps some writers who aren't of our tribe, if you like, are, have, have been less aware of it in a sort of, and, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I mean that that's, a blessing for, for someone who feels able to attempt to try and tag along with a gypsy family that's not their family but um I have a gypsy family and the idea of doing that with another one is is sort of absurd from our perspective so um no I, I didn't think of that I mean I, I had my, my my wife um Candice who who was my wife at the time with me some of the time uh and sometimes I was with people I knew sometimes with with family members, but but I was alone a lot, and that was fine by me, you know. And and actually, as a as a means of absorbing the place in a different way, uh, if I may, forgive me for using the Latin 
term, uh, the genius loci, the spirit of the place. Um, it, it was helpful for me to be alone, I think. And it's interesting that you began with uh, that bit in the book where I talk about the emptiness of these places, because something that inspired me to want to do this was a realization that in spite of the fact, like many, perhaps most people, I have a great love for the grand buildings that we've inherited from the past, historical architecture, castles, ruins. I was also keenly aware that for many of us, our ancestors didn't leave such traces and often they left an absence and that was the most potent trace of their presence. So I wanted to investigate really those empty spaces and um, really writing enables you to to populate, to repopulate them, to paint a picture of what they may have been in a way that film, for instance, doesn't. Uh, I had offers to, to be filmed on this trip, but I knew that it wouldn't work. You know, if, if you, a camera would see nothing but a bloke and a van, you know, a guy in a van, um, which is fine, but that's not what I was seeing. So um, I wanted to to show what I saw. Your route, Damien, took you around the UK and the south of France too. Can you outline some of that journey and, and the sights that you wanted to hit? Yes, so I began not knowing any better with the places that my family had told me about, where they used to live. So it began as a trip into territory that was not mine personally, but was, had been the, the sort of turf, if you like, or the temporary, you know, the nomadic uh, uh, territory of, of my own family. And from there, it kind of, the route generated itself because I spoke to people who told me about other stopping places. So I began in the southeast of England, where, where my mother's family are from, and I branched out from there sort of westward uh, and then wended my way up north and, and eventually into Scotland, but with this break in the journey, which was dictated by the timing of a religious festival, uh, where I went down to to the Camargue for the pilgrimage of of the Holy Sarahs, Les Saintes Marie de la Mer, the Holy Sarahs of the Sea, which to an extent is a Romany pilgrimage, but it's uh, really shared by the Catholic Church, the the local people of the Camargue, Romany pilgrims from all over Europe and and other pilgrims and tourists. So like any any such event, it's it's not culturally pure in any way, but it was a very beautiful thing that, that, that I wanted to see. And so that took me, that's the bit that's not Gypsy Britain, if you like, but the rest of it is England, Wales and Scotland. Well, it's a rich history of the Romanies of Britain dating back at least 500 years. And, and you write, they've been a contentious presence ever since. Do you think that's to do in part with, with their perceived state of motion as semi-perpetual wanderers? Because here on the Wandering Book Collector podcast, we've spoken to writers a lot about the life of nomads and transhuman pastoralists. And, and throughout history, many of these groups have been eyed with suspicion by the settled, the urban dweller who thinks the movement is arbitrary and aimless rather than with the intent, say, to secure seasonal work, for example. Do you think that's part of the prejudice and discrimination directed against this wandering impulse? There is certainly a powerful connection between the nomadic 
element of Romani history and the this perpetual kind of static that seems to exist. I, I, I funny to choose the word static, but I mean in the electrical sense, there's a sort of crackle that never seems to go away between the Romani people and the, and the surrounding community. When you have Romani people living as a community, that is, uh, it's it's a different story if you're living sort of by yourself and don't tend to be noticed um it's kind of the size of the rambunctious family groups and, and that plays into it there, there's definitely a connection between the peripatetic or the you know the mobile past but we have to be aware that for many romani people that really is in the past and if you go to istanbul for instance there are that there's a romani community whose ancestors haven't been nomadic in some cases since before the fall of the Byzantine Empire. So this idea that it's because of of nomadism is an oversimplification. Um, it's played a role, but there's a sense of cultural difference and of incompatibility and suspicion that is powerful and in some cases separate to the idea that we don't get on with nomads. And... We can see that in, in British Romani history, for instance. It seems to have been connected in the beginning with the idea of swindling, fortune-telling, ideas of witchcraft, possibly a lingering association with Catholicism because Romanis came to the United... Well, it wasn't the United Kingdom. It came to, arrived in Scotland as a Catholic people bearing letters of safe conduct, which may or may not have been genuine probably not, um, from the Pope. Uh, and, th and then once the monarchy of England, they moved into England and, and, you know, the English monarchy that decoupled itself from allegiance to the Catholic Church. And you have these people who are obviously foreign, uh, dressed in foreign garb. Um, the interesting thing about that is that descriptions of those people include the fact that they were flamboyantly dressed and armed to be armed in the 15th century meant that you were of a certain level of means. So it seems that they weren't arriving out of a kind of economic desperation. We don't know. We don't have any autobiographical accounts of why they came to the British mainland or indeed where from. Could have been Scandinavia, could have been Northern France. We don't know. Uh, we don't know what their names were before they arrived. Um, but it's interesting to to think about that. And especially when you've been trying for many years, as I have, to make the point that you did a moment ago, which is that Romani people have tended, you know, gyp gypsies, if we're, we're going to use that word, have tended to move for very good reasons, you know, push the push-pull of economics, family allegiance, things like that, um, that actually curiosity, for instance, the desire to to simply move to see what is elsewhere. You might want to call it wanderlust, has also played a role. And so having explored this stuff, it's interesting to arrive back at looking something that sounds a, a bit like a stereotype, having tried to get away from it, you know. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm as you can tell, I'm spitballing here, but uh Do you do you think it's easier to travel? if you belong somewhere so that you can say, I come from so-and-so, because then it means probably a community knows you and people then presume or hope that the community that you talk about 
where you come from trusts you, so you're going to be all right. Because it was one of the it's one of the first questions people ask when they meet a stranger. Where are you from? Where are you from? My relatives would reply to that question with a much more colourful response, which I don't feel prepared to say on your podcast. Um, but they would refer to their biological origin uh, in in their mother as a response. So they take umbrage at the question where they were from because it tended to be directed at them because someone had noticed that they were gypsies. Uh, so they, they'd respond with a... I mean, I, I, mean, I can't say it, but um, it's, it's an interesting one, this, because, yes, that's a typical question to ask someone that you don't know that, that you've just met, but it isn't a typical question amongst gypsies and travellers who tend to ask what your name is or who's you one of. Uh, who, who are your people, um, which means your family, you know, your extended family. They want to know what the names in your family tree are uh, and where you have spent the majority of your time is of, it's not of no interest, but it's of far less interest than trying to get the measure of someone based on who their people are. So um, being asked, I mean, I can be asked, where I'm from, I, I am from a particular place. I grew up in West Sussex, uh, but many other members of my family, many other travellers that, that I know, my friends don't have that affinity with a particular place, um, were, were born in a hospital somewhere and within six weeks were living a thousand miles away. And this is, of course, true, true of other people, but there's, I think, perhaps because of the history, um, there's a different identification with the haphazardness of our connection to place, if that if that makes sense, and I do think that that has played into a kind of um, a suspicion of being asked about where you're from, and a reluctance to ask the question. You yourself, Damien, can trace your own Romani ancestry back at least six generations, and and in your words, you have gypsy and non-gypsy blood. You write. In many travellers' eyes, I do not have the right to call myself a true-bred Romany because the mixing in my family happened within living memory. This grappling with your identity was one of the motivations, I think, for your journey. And from there on, a constant narrative. Where are you with that search? Well, firstly, I'd like to say that I thought that was really impressive that I could recite six generations of my family back until I read Ayan Hirsi Ali's work about her memorization of her ancestry and it, and finding out in my 20s the extent to which other people's uh, ha had this information drilled into them and were expected to be able to repeat it sort of was humbling and, and blew my mind really so so the the Romany knowledge of that is probably not quite what it once was I imagine there was a time when when it that there was it was memorized much further back but um where am I with the mixedness thing I think like most people age is a great help in becoming more comfortable with who you are and I don't care about it as much as I used to I used to feel really quite pain you know almost tortured by this um what I saw as a lack of simplicity, if that makes sense, an unwanted complexity to me. And when I saw other 
gypsy people who didn't seem possessed of that. I mean, of course, everybody does, <laughs> but it's a question. It's whether we believe it or not, isn't it? It's, is your story about yourself something which is palatable to those in your immediate circle, or is it the sort of thing that they might cock a strange glance at, possibly? And and, and in the gypsy community, um, having mixed gorgia, we would say, or uh, gadje they would say in continental Europe and elsewhere around the world, ha having a mix of, of gypsy and gadget ancestry is um, an unwanted complexity a lot of the time. So yes, I used to get very exercised about that, but but I, I sort of care less with that. I'm not going to say I don't care, but actually I've come to value it to see how absurd it is to sit there as a human being wishing that you were otherwise when the person who is doing the wishing it is a person who exists you know it's preposterous but we sometimes we can't help it and and it's probably a necessary mental exercise in the story of coming to terms with yourself i think if that makes sense but with age recognizing things like the fact that not everybody is from an ethnic minority, but everyone has an ethnicity and every ethnicity is very complicated. Um, thing, recognizing things like that help one to come to terms with and be at ease with, with one's own background. And to be honest, I don't find my own ancestry or anybody else's as interesting as I used to. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but um, something about the journey I was on in this book took me away from all that and gave me a greater fixation with people's thoughts and soul and energy in the present moment. So actually, although this is, I suppose, packaged in a way, uh, and that's down to me, uh, this book, as a journey into gypsy culture, and it and it is, I think every book, certainly that I would want to read, is about something on the surface, and it is about Romany history and about a, a physical journey that I made and about my family and stuff. But books also have to be about something else, which isn't immediately obvious. And I think that hopefully the thing that this is about that's not so immediately obvious is that it's kind of a journey away as well. And it's kind of a a burrowing into a culture as a means of self-liberation from the strictures of culture. And I was thinking about that idea as I wrote it. Uh, there was a line in Joseph Campbell's, perhaps excessively quoted from book, uh, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, but that, there's, a, there's a lot that's that's amazing in that but it's just that you know people go on about it a lot but that's deserved and fine uh where he talks about being um i'm gonna garble it now but but being mired in culture being trapped by it and that was on my mind a lot while i was on this journey i think perhaps particularly because gypsy culture has become over a thousand years a byword for freedom. And the word gypsy has has been co-opted, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's it's been embraced by wider culture as a synonym for being footloose or not being accountable or not being 
confined by moral codes or restrictions, which is almost hilarious to someone from the Romani community because it's a it's a, a deeply morally concerned and in many ways quite quite restrictive culture. So I was thinking about all these themes and, and hopefully that comes across in a way. So age you know allows for that anyway, but but did the road trip kind of catalyze that progress in your own in internal personal emotional journey do you think yes because as a kid i was constantly reminded as any child of gypsies who has not lived on the road i mean you'd be reminded anyway and it's, it's something that humans do that we we tell the young that things aren't how they used to be and that in some way they'll never understand you know that's sort of something that older humans have to tell younger humans for some reason. And we were constantly reminded that we hadn't grown up on the road and we didn't know what it was like. And we sort of lacked a kind of toughness, a kind of flexibility, a mental acumen, an ability, as my elders would say, to get up in the morning and walk down that road there and not know how you was gonna get your living, but you was gonna get it by God. You know, that was to be a traveler, to have the belief that by hook or by crook, you were going to put food in that pot over the fire and survive, and your family would survive. And we were steeped in the fact that we lacked this ability, that we were doomed not to be as strong as people who'd lived like that. And that is fine. And I believed it because my elders sort of, emitted they had an aura of that strength they carried that strength around with them like a kind of glow like a halo physically and charismatically and phonically in their voices they had a gravitas that I, f I still feel that I don't have but it was also not very kind in a way to keep telling the kids that they can't live up to you and there was an element of me that felt there was a part of me that felt downcast about that but there was another side of me that thought well, actually, fuck you, if I may say that. You, you, I'll say it again in case you want to take it out. But, you know, actually, I've had enough of hearing that. You don't know what power I may possess. You don't know my future. You don't know anybody's future. And I will see where my road takes me. Thank you very much. And they, they, it came to a point where I got sick of hearing, of being reminded of the fact that I hadn't lived in stopping places, that I hadn't, I didn't know the stopping places. I hadn't lived on the road. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll go and live in them then and then I'll know them, won't I? And then at least you won't be able to say that to me anymore. You, you, there'll be things you can say to me. I can't go back in time and be born in a wagon or a bender tent, but you won't be able to say to me that I haven't lived on the road. And that was a motivator for me. I don't know if that counts as a negative motivation. It certainly wasn't as simple as a kind of wanderlust or a dream of a van life existence or something. I mean, there's I have that side to me. I am a bit of a van life kind of guy or whatever. But there was something more powerful and inspired by a bit of anger towards my own, I think. In the, and um, I like the fact that when people ask me about it now, I can say, well, actually, I've, I've, I've I've lived in briefly in some cases in 73 stopping places all over Britain and, and a couple in France and stuff. Um, I don't put too much store in it. And I don't think that nomadism is, is any better than a sedentary life. 
but I still think that that is interesting and a nice thing to be able to talk about. Some of the confusion you've encountered has been to do with how you look. You, you write more than once about how you, you don't look like most people's conception of a typical gypsy with your blue eyes and fair hair. And, and that kind of to follow on what you've just said was is gypsy on gypsy too, right? Is that, that mismatch gives rise to what you termed a tetchy defensiveness. Has that been resolved as well? as kind of the emotional side of it. That will never be resolved. No, I mean, I, I can't resolve that because the idea of, of, a, of a proper old fashioned 100% gypsy, the romantic ideal of the gypsy is a, is a kind of a, a Lorca-esque ideal in the Romany mind as much as in anybody else's, I think. And I look more like a fourth division Swedish footballer or a kind of <laughs> an extra from some series about Vikings or so. And that's just the way the cookie has crumbled in my case. And that's fine. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with that, but it is a strange thing when you have a heritage which is deeply connected in people's heads with a, a, a dark-skinned people who speak an Indian language. Uh, and so people, all, all my life, people have been happy to tell me that I'm actually deceived about, about my heritage. Uh, it's a very strange thing when you tell someone, you, you know, I, I, my family are gypsies, I'm, I'm, I'm part Romany and stuff. Um, and I grew up in gypsy culture and I speak, and they're going, ah, you know, gypsy people and non-gypsies. I mean, it's a, it's surreal, isn't it? Imagine telling someone that, I don't know, for instance, on my, I'm British, but my, my father's Italian. And they just go, no, you're mistaken. Um, I, I can't actually imagine ever presuming to do that, but that's something that I've been told, you know, every week since I was a kid that I'm not a gypsy. Uh, and there are, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of of Romany people with my colouring. It's a community which for the most part is visibly non-white, but that's not the case for all of us because we have mixed ancestry. And um, I suppose the reason that I had that tetchy defensiveness that I wrote about was that it used to annoy me that you could be of mixed heritage uh, and a gypsy. And if, if you were dark, no one would ever query it. They would only query it if, if you were fair. So um, I'm not complaining about what I look like. It's fine, but it's just had some interesting results in terms of how I've interacted with people in, in my life. So I wanted to, and I thought it was interesting to kind of try and mine that a bit. And, I, and I've had some lovely letters from people from all kinds of backgrounds who've experienced similar things uh, be, be, being told by people who they've only just met what their real heritage is. I mean, it's a surreal thing to to do to somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know about that. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't um, also just your looks, Damon, but also your education, your good grades, your, your degree from Oxford University that sent you in what you felt was a different direction. A, a cousin taunts you for your new accent, for example. Have you since found a way and I quote this from the book, to be English educated, but a gypsy. And I noticed you used the word, but, and wanted to ask why 
is it that those labels are not easy bedfellows? Do you know what? It hadn't occurred to me that I said but and not and. But I think that there's a good reason for that, that you've picked up on. And it's because they're not easy bedfellows, no. And that's as much to do with the class system and its sort of long-term fallout in Britain as anything else, I think. So, for instance, to speak the Anglo-Romany language or, or what we call Romanes or Romany Jib, uh, the gypsy language of Britain, is to speak it in a manner which is really obviously of the rural working class, of the rural poor. The, the inflection, the accents in which it is spoken are often shared by uh, the, the rural working class who were not gypsies. So there's there's a big overlap there. So if if I were to speak my mother tongue in what sounded like a, a sort of posh way, ironically, posh has a Romany etymology, but we'll come back to that or not or whatever. But um, that would be seen as inauthentic. I'd be taken for someone who'd learned the language from a book or academically or something, but not a native speaker. So there's, there is a perennial tension uh, between these things, but between educatedness, between the idea of being upwardly mobile and, and the idea of the authentic ethnic Romany person. And I don't think that there's much to be done about that deliberately, although I think that it's beginning to change at a glacial pace over time, organically. But that's certainly, you, you've picked up on something there. Really, to be a gypsy and to be not just working class in a way, I, I don't want to say working, but, but to, to be a gypsy and to do certain kinds of trades and to actually have dropped out of education early. These things are really conflated uh, in our culture. And I think it's, it'll take, you know, that that's a strange, it's a powerful thing and it, it'll change very slowly, I think. When it came to your descriptions of your road trip, there wasn't much sugarcoating. At times you sounded cold, lonely and downright miserable um and you chronicled kind of less glamorous landmarks like this frozen copses and hilltops old maintenance roads with potholes and bad light scrapyards council waste ground laybys near the edges of tips slag heaps and drained marshes fen ends chalk pits yards and quarries sell it to me damien was there somewhere that that rests in your memory, particularly from that journey, either for making you feel welcome or, or the opposite? I think I rarely felt welcome anywhere. I often felt ignored or unseen, and that was enough for me. And that made me very aware of how unlike the journeys of a normal gypsy family my journey was. Because if you're living in the back of a van by yourself, nobody sees you that I mean unless they happen to see you getting out and then they kind of ignore you anyway for the most part I mean that it's not 
not always the case. And there are a few occasions I mentioned in the book where people did take a keen interest. Uh, and I was subject to that strange English custom of believing that you're allowed to police people when you're not the police and there's no evidence that they've done anything wrong. But yes, many of the places I stayed in were far from idyllic and there's a good reason for that. Historically, gypsies and travellers had a better chance of spending, of living for a while in a place where no one else wanted to be. And that's where a lot of contemporary gypsy sites, so these are, if, for anyone listening who's not, who's, who's not from Britain, uh, they're sort of allocated uh, encampments provided by the local authority um, for gypsies and travellers, but they're often very compound-like with high barbed wire fencing around. They, they, they don't look like pleasant places to live, and they, they kind of are, you know, eth they have been described by some writers as a kind of ethnic ghetto, or, but I think that that is the kind of language that wouldn't go down well with people who, who live there, who are often very happy to live there, you know, but, but they are often tactically placed in the kind of place that most people wouldn't aspire to live. So they, they are, often are near tips or, you know, power generation stations or water purification plants. And that's because that was somewhere where a local authority could put them and they would suffer fewer objections from other people for, for doing that. So that history, I think, has kind of just made its way naturally into the journey that I took. Uh, because so many of these places are like that. And then occasionally you will in, end up in somewhere that looks kind of idyllic. But then the reasons for that historically are interesting. It's it's often because it's a, a rural area where in the past gypsies and travellers did back-breaking agricultural work and it just happens to be really pretty. So uh, nowhere was entirely idyllic, but some places were much nicer places to make a cup of tea than others. I mean, I recall golden moments when you saw, for example, a line of lapwings swoop into view, flickering black and white. And, and you did find beauty in the details, such as sunlight oh, cool. passing across your steering wheel. I have that in my head. But, but on reflection, I, th I think this was a journey you took a while back now. On balance, how do you reflect on, on that trip as a whole? It was really divided into two times, two moods, two humours, two seasons, basically. And in the recollection of gypsies and other nomadic people who live on the road, particularly in one of the higher, you know, or lower latitudes where you have pronounced seasons. Um, I mean, we have theoretically four seasons in this part of the world but but in my family's memory there seemed to be two really winter and summer and the winter was a bad time to be a gypsy and the summer was a good time to be a gypsy but in the winter you were often ignored because you were living in the in the middle of nowhere in a, in a sort of desolate uh, camp up a hill or something and, and people weren't kind of out and about and then in the summer you'd be more visible or perhaps more mobile less entrenched and and sometimes envied 
for living an outdoor uh, nomadic existence when the weather was good. So um, often th this dichotomy would be summarised as, well, it won a bad life in the summer, but I remember the winter and that's why I, I moved off the road, you know. So um, that's what I remember, that that winter-summer divide. And when I look at photographs of, of me on this journey, I can see that written into my face what time of year it was because I'm, I look happy in some pictures and I'm really quite troubled in others. And simple tasks like washing and drying your clothes become deeply preoccupying when it's raining all week. And there's not much to romanticise about that other than the fact that it imbues you with a certain kind of stoicism and toughness, I suppose. But um, it's much nicer in the summer. You called the van, Damien, a bubble of placelessness, but you also called it home. Was it home? It was. Absolutely. And I recall having a feeling of where it was relative to where I was that was very powerful. And I found it fascinating that that could be transported, that I felt almost a compass needle inside myself, constantly pointing back at the van, even if I'd just turned up somewhere. I remember I was stopping or camping on the Isle of Skye and I went for an ill-advised sort of overly long walk up Glen Brittle in a pair of flip-flops and almost got into some difficulties out of my own, own stupidity uh, for which I apologize I suppose to, to myself um, but the the sense of of the van and once I realized I'd gone too far of wanting to get back to it and and, and knowing where what a feeling that the pull of it this place that I was deeply connected to that wasn't a place. It was a it was a space on wheels, but but not a place. And I felt tethered to it powerfully. And it was a pleasant feeling. It was a reassuring feeling. And I knew that I had my pictures of my family in there and obviously my bed and my utensils and all that kind of stuff. Um it became a a wonderful feeling knowing that it was waiting for me. And I do miss that aspect of my brief life on the road. Where's the van now? Here, it's about 15 yards away from where I'm sitting. And at the moment I don't drive it, but it's still, I, I can't bring myself to get rid of it. I, I've got another van. Um, it, it's it's getting old now, the van of the book. Cushy Bock, I sort of fancifully, I kind of half named it. I couldn't quite bring myself to, that's the kind of thing that would be smirked at a little bit, sort of winked at in in gypsy culture, name naming your van, I, I think, but, but I sort of couldn't help it. I mean, I, I love John Steinbeck's book, Travels with Charlie in Search of America, in which he named his very beautifully custom-built living truck Rocinante after Don Quixote's horse. And I sort of had that, you know, in my mind. So I kind of wanted to to play with the idea that, that I'd named it, but but I, I didn't really name it. I I never I never said to any other travellers, oh, is is me van Kushti Bok. I couldn't couldn't bring myself to do anything so uh romantic and and sort of untravelified. So are you speaking to me, Damien, from home, or or is 
out the window, like the space on. It's wheels. got home at the minute. Yeah. It is. Yeah, a bungalow. Is that a fluid in the sense that there's a couple of vans outside parked, ready to take you somewhere? Is that is that a call of the open road? I always want to feel able to go, and that seems to be quite a powerful aspect of gypsy culture, which is shared by many people who are not gypsies, of course. I like the fact that I live on quite a busy road and it reminds me that I can jump in and, and go and I can't imagine life being any different, really. And that idea of preparedness to move, of having a, a knowledge of how to do it a facility with with vehicles and trailers. I mean, I'm not a great, I'm not a mechanic, and I don't really know. Half the time, I wouldn't know what to do with myself if something went seriously wrong with it. But but I sort of can do it well enough to get by, and that is important to me. And I don't know how much that's got to do with my cultural heritage, and how much that's just something that happens to be within me because it's powerfully within so many people uh, who, as I've said don't come from a recently nomadic uh, cultural backdrop. But the, th the thing to remember is that for the vast majority of the history of anatomically modern humans, it seems that all humans were at least semi-nomadic um, and that most were probably totally nomadic. F for as much as 99% of, of the history of our species. So... It, it shouldn't be surprising to anyone that so many of us feel that way. And I think it should be far more surprising that anybody never does. Uh, yeah, if that makes sense. The gypsy diaspora is huge, of course, and global and um, with roots, some say in Northwest India. Are there any particular journeys you long to make to map the history further? Well, there was a natural sequel to this book where I traced more of the journey overseas. And there were a couple of reasons why I didn't want to do that. I mean, firstly, I really wanted to write about something else, uh, which is the book that I'm working on at the moment, which is about the sea. And also I possessed a book, um, which was produced by National Geographic in the in the 1970s about a journey which um, some which a Romani family made with a photographer and they retraced the route of the Romani migration from India backwards from England to the subcontinent and it's an incredibly beautiful book full of photographs. And you could do that then in a vehicle in a way that's simply not possible now. You could, you could drive a Land Rover from France to Afghanistan. And and um, so I knew that I'd been capable of, of doing it in that way. And I felt disinclined for other reasons because I, I wanted to do something else. Um, and, and rather than extending what I was already thinking about, I wanted to take a sideways step and think about something else. So, so um, there, there are a few reasons why I didn't do that then, but I mean, I wouldn't rule it out in the future. And um, I, I love the, the work of writers who've undertaken 
transcontinental or generally madcap journeys so uh who knows you know who knows but i don't feel particularly inclined to do that at the moment it, it's called um gypsies wanderers of the world i think but i'll just confirm that i think you referenced it actually you've referenced it in the book yeah it is and, and uh the credited author is bart mcdowell but bart mcdowell was traveling with members of the lee family um fr from from england R romany people uh, on that journey yeah well, I'm going to then um, force your hand a bit, if you don't mind, and, and finally um, ask you about this book on the sea that you're writing now. Will you indulge me? Yes. Well, this book is about the sea and it's about Atlantis and the many meanings of Atlantis, which is a word that I've been obsessed with for a long time. In a way which I always thought was completely separate to my heritage but perhaps it's not that simple but certainly there's not a there's not an immediately obvious overlap is there between gypsies and atlantis uh, there was a sci-fi book published some time ago where the author attempted to make some kind of connection but i haven't read that and i imagine it's it's quite strange um but atlantis for me is a word with one of the most interesting exciting pluralities of meaning of any noun I can think of. I think it's the most interesting place name in the world. And I've tried to explain why I think that's the case. And that has taken me underwater for reasons which are quite odd. Uh, and I've been working on that for about three and a half years and it will probably be out in about two years. So that's been a, I've, I've not rushed and, it may seem like a very odd segue, not that anybody cares, <laughs> but uh, but I have thought about this. But the thing is, the stopping places for me was an examination of a hidden geography of the land. And to an extent, I've been examining a hidden geography of the sea. So to me there 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 is an obvious you know it's it's in some respects an obvious sidestep but um not 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 at a superficial level in terms of the topics involved well, i hope you find it or maybe you found it we'll maybe. see um damien labar thank you very much for joining me on the wandering book collector thank you for having me my thanks to the supporter of this podcast abercrombie and kent goodbye